Chapter Nine, Part One of the Life of Cicero, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa Jevons. The Life of Cicero, Volume One by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Nine, Catiline, Part One. To wash the blackamoor white has been the favourite task of some modern historians. To find a paradox in character is a relief to the investigating mind which does not care to walk always in the well-tried paths, or to follow the grooves made plain and uninteresting by earlier writers. Tiberius and even Nero have been praised. The memories of our early years have been shocked by instructions to regard Richard III and Henry VIII as great and scrupulous kings. The devil may have been painted blacker than he should be, and the minds of just men, who will not accept the verdict of the majority, have been much exercised to put the matter right. We are now told that Catiline was a popular hero, that, though he might have wished to murder Cicero, he was, in accordance with the practice of his days, not much to be blamed for that, and that he was simply the follower of the Gracchi, and the forerunner of Caesar, in his desire to oppose the oligarchy of Rome. In this there is much that is true, Murder was common. He who had seen the sullen prescriptions, as both Catiline and Cicero had done, might well have learned to feel less scrupulous as to blood than we do in these days. Even Cicero, who was of all the Romans the most humane, even he, no doubt, would have been well contented that Catiline should have been destroyed by the people. Even he was the cause, as we shall see just now, of the execution of the leaders of the conspirators whom Catiline left behind him in the city, an execution of which the legality is at any rate very doubtful. But in judging even of bloodshed, we have to regard the circumstances of the time in the verdicts we give. Our consciousness of altered manners and of the growth of gentleness forces upon us. We cannot execrate the conspirators who murdered Caesar as we would do those who might now plot the death of a tyrant, nor can we deal as heavily with the murderers of Caesar as we would have done then with the Catilinarian conspirators in Rome, had Catiline's conspiracy succeeded. And so, too, in acknowledging that Catiline was the outcome of the Gracchi, and to some extent the preparation for Caesar, we must again compare him with them, his motives and designs with theirs, before we can allow ourselves to sympathise with him, because there was much in them worthy of praise and honour. That the Gracchi were seditious, no historian has, I think, denied. They were willing to use the usages and laws of the Republic, where those usages and laws assisted them, but as willing to act illegally when the usages and laws ran counter to them. In the reforms or changes which they attempted they were undoubtedly rebels, but no reader comes across the tale of the death, first of one and then of the other, without a regret. It has to be owned that they were murdered in tumults which they themselves had occasioned, but they were honest and patriotic. History has declared of them that their efforts were made with the real purport of relieving their fellow countrymen from what they believed to be the tyranny of oligarchs. The Republic, even in their time, had become too rotten to be saved, but the world has not the less given them the credit for a desire to do good, and the names of the two brothers, rebels as they were, have come down to us with a sweet savour about them. Caesar, on the other hand, was no doubt of the same political party. He, too, was opposed to the oligarchs, 
but it never occurred to him that he could save the Republic by any struggles after freedom. His mind was not given to patriotism of that sort, not to memories, not to associations. Even laws were nothing to him but as they might be useful. To his thinking, probably even in his early days, the state of Rome required a master. Its wealth, its pleasures, its soldiers, its power, were there for any one to take who could take them, for any one to hold who could hold them. Mr. Beasley, the last defender of Catiline, has stated that very little was known in Rome of Caesar till the time of Catiline's conspiracy, and in that I agree with him. He possessed high family rank, and had been quaestor and aedile, but it was only from this year out that his name was much in men's mouths, and that he was learning to look into things. It may be that he had previously been in league with Catiline, that he was in league with him till the time came for the great attempt. The evidence, as far as it goes, seems to show that it was so. Rome had been the prey of many conspiracies. The dominion of Marius and the dominion of Sulla had been affected by conspiracies. No doubt the opinion was strong with many that both Caesar and Crassus, the rich man, were concerned with Catiline. But Caesar was very far-seeing, and if such connection existed, knew how to withdraw from it when the time was not found to be opportune. But from first to last he always was opposed to the oligarchy. The various steps from the Gracchi to him were as those which had to be made from the Girondists to Napoleon. Catiline, no doubt, was one of the steps, as were Danton and Robespierre steps. The continuation of steps in each case was at first occasioned by the bad government and greed of a few men in power, but as Robespierre was vile and low, whereas Vergniaud was honest and Napoleon great, so was it with Catiline between the Gracchi and Caesar. There is to my thinking no excuse for Catiline in the fact that he was a natural step, not even though he were a necessary step between the Gracchi and Caesar. I regard as futile the attempts which are made to rewrite history on the base of moral convictions and philosophical conclusion. History very often has been, and no doubt often again will be, rewritten, with good effect and in the service of truth, on the founding of new facts. Records have been brought to light which have hitherto been buried, and testimonies are compared with testimonies which have not before been seen together. But to imagine that a man may have been good, who has lain under the ban of all the historians, all the poets, and all the tellers of anecdotes, and then to declare such goodness simply in accordance with the dictates of a generous heart or a contradictory spirit, is to disturb rather than to assist history. Of Catiline we at least know that he headed a sedition in Rome in the year of Cicero's consulship, that he left the city suddenly, that he was killed in the neighbourhood of Pistoia, fighting against the generals of the Republic, and that he left certain accomplices in Rome who were put to death by an edict of the Senate. So much, I think, is certain to the most truculent doubter. From his contemporaries, Sallust and Cicero, we have a very strongly expressed opinion of his character. They have left to us denunciations of the man which have made him odious to all after ages, so that modern poets have made him a stock character, and have dramatised him as a fiend. Voltaire has described him as calling upon his fellow-conspirators to murder Cicero and Cato, and to burn the city. Ben Jonson makes Catiline kill a slave, and mix his blood to be drained by his friends. There cannot be a fitter drink to make this sanction in, 
The friends of Catiline will say that this shows no evidence against the man. None, certainly, but it is a continued expression of the feeling that has prevailed since Catiline's time. In his own age, Cicero and Sallus, who were opposed in all their political views, combined to speak ill of him. In the next, Virgil makes him as suffering his punishment in hell. In the next, Velleius Paterculus speaks of him as the conspirator whom Cicero had banished. Juvenal makes various allusions to him, but all in the same spirit. Juvenal cared nothing for history, but used the names of well-known persons as illustrations of the idea which he was presenting. Valerius Maximus, who wrote commendable little essays about all the virtues and all the vices, which he illustrated with the names of all the vicious and all the virtuous people he knew, is very severe on Catiline. Florus, who wrote two centuries and a half after the conspiracy, gives us of Catiline the same personal story as that told both by Sallust and Cicero. Debauchery in the first place, and then the poverty which that had produced, and then the opportunity of the time, because the Roman armies were in distant lands, induced Catiline to conspire for the destruction of his country. Momsen, who was certainly biased by no feeling in favour of Cicero, declares that Catiline in particular was one of the most nefarious men in that nefarious age. His villainies belong to the criminal records, not to history. All this is no evidence. Cicero and Sallust may possibly have combined to lie about Catiline. Other Roman writers may have followed them, and modern poets and modern historians may have followed the Roman writers. It is possible that the world may have been wrong as to a period of Roman history with which it has thought itself to be well acquainted. But the world now has nothing to go by but the facts as they have come down to it. The writers of the ages since have combined to speak of Cicero with respect and admiration. They have combined also to speak of Catiline with abhorrence. They have agreed also to treat those other rebels, the Gracchi, after such a fashion that, in spite of their sedition, a sweet savour, as I have said, attaches itself to their names. For myself, I am contented to take the opinion of the world, and feel assured that I shall do no injustice in speaking of Catiline as all who have written about him hitherto have spoken of him. I cannot consent to the building up of a noble patriot out of such materials as we have concerning him. Two strong points have been made for Catiline in Mr. Beasley's defence. His ancestors had been consuls when the forefathers of patricians of a later date were clapping their chapped hands and throwing up their sweaty nightcaps. That scorn against the people should be expressed by the aristocrat Casca was well supposed by Shakespeare. But how did a liberal of the present day bring himself to do honour to his hero by such allusions? In truth, however, the glory of ancient blood, and the disgrace attaching to the signs of labour, are ideas seldom relinquished even by democratic minds. A Howard is nowhere lovelier than in America, or a sweaty nightcap less relished. We are then reminded how Catiline died fighting, with the wounds all in front, and are told that the world has generally a generous word for the memory of a brave man dying for his cause, be that cause what it will, but for Catiline, none. I think there is a mistake in the sentiment expressed here. To die readily when death must come is but a little thing, and is done daily by the poorest of mankind. 
The Romans could generally do it, and so can the Chinese. A Zulu is quite equal to it, and people lower in civilization than Chinese or Zulus. To encounter death, or the danger of death, for the sake of duty, when the choice is there, but duty and death are preferred to ignominious security, or, better still, to security which shall bring with it self-abasement, that is grand. When I hear that a man rushed into the field and foremost fighting fell, if there had been no adequate occasion, I think him a fool. If it be that he has chosen to hurry on the necessary event, as was Catiline's case, I recognise him as having been endowed with certain physical attributes which are neither glorious nor disgraceful. That Catiline was constitutionally a brave man, no one has denied. Rush, the murderer, was one of the bravest men of whom I remember to have heard. What credit is due to Rush is due to Catiline. What we believe to be the story of Catiline's life is this. In Sulla's time he was engaged, as behooved a great nobleman of ancient blood, in carrying out the dictator's prescriptions, and in running through whatever means he had. There are fearful stories told of him as to murdering his own son and other relatives, as to which Mr. Beasley is no doubt right in saying that such tales were too lightly told in Rome to deserve implicit confidence. To serve a purpose, any one would say anything of any enemy. Very marvellous qualities are attributed to him, as to having been at the same time steeped in luxury, and yet able and willing to bear all bodily hardships. He probably had been engaged in murders, as how should a man not have been so who had served under Sulla during the dictatorship? He had probably allured some young aristocrats into debauchery, when all young aristocrats were so allured. He had probably undergone some extremity of cold and hunger. In reading of these things, the reader will know by instinct how much he may believe, and how much he should receive as mythic. That he was a fast young nobleman, brought up to know no scruples, to disregard blood, and to look upon his country as a milch-cow from which a young nobleman might be fed with never-ending streams of rich cream, in the shape of money to be borrowed, wealth to be snatched, and above all foreigners to be plundered, we may take, I think, as proved. In spite of his vices, or by aid of them, he rose in the service of his country. That such a one should become a praetor and a governor was natural. He went to Africa with proconsular authority, and, of course, fleeced the Africans. It was as natural as that a flock of sheep should lose their wool at shearing time. He came back, intent, as was natural also, on being a consul, and of carrying on the game of promotion and of plunder. But there came a spoke in his wheel, the not unusual spoke of an accusation from the province. While under accusation for provincial robbery, he could not come forward as a candidate, and thus he was stopped in his career. It is not possible now to unravel all the personal feuds of the time, the ins and outs of family quarrels. Clodius, the Clodius who was afterwards Cicero's notorious enemy, and the victim of Milo's fury, became the accuser of Catiline on behalf of the Africans. Though Clodius was much the younger, they were men of the same class. It may be possible that Clodius was appointed to the work, as it had been intended that Caecilius should be appointed at the prosecution of Verres, in order to assure not the conviction, but the acquittal of the guilty man. The historians and biographers say that Clodius was at last bought by a bribe, and that he betrayed the Africans after that fashion. 
It may be that such bribery was arranged from the first. Our interest in that trial lies in the fact that Cicero, no doubt intended from political motives, to defend Catiline. It has been said that he did do so. As far as we know, he abandoned the intention. We have no trace of his speech, and no allusion in history to an occurrence which would certainly have been mentioned. But there was no reason why he should not have done so. He defended Fonteus, and I am quite willing to own that he knew Fonteus to have been a robber. When I look at the practice of our own times, I find that thieves and rebels are defended by honourable advocates, who do not scruple to take their briefs in opposition to their own opinions. It suited Cicero to do the same. If I were detected in a plot for blowing up a cabinet council, I do not doubt but that I should get the late Attorney-General to defend me. Footnote. Cicero, however, declares that he has made a difference between traitors to their country and other criminals. Pro P. Sulla, Chapter 3. Verum etiam quaedam contagio scelens, si defendas eum, quem obstrictum esse patriae paricidio suspicere. Further on in the same oration, Chapter 6, he explains that he had refused to defend Autronius because he had known Autronius to be a conspirator against his country. I cannot admit the truth of the argument in which Mr. Forsyth defends the practice of the English bar in this respect, and in so doing presses hard upon Cicero. At Rome, he says, it was different. The advocate there was conceived to have a much wider discretion than we allow. Neither in Rome nor in England has the advocate been held to be disgraced by undertaking the defence of bad men who have been notoriously guilty. What an English barrister may do, there was no reason that a Roman advocate should not do, in regard to simple criminality. Cicero himself has explained, in the passage I have quoted, how the Roman practice did differ from ours in regard to treason. He has stated also that he knew nothing of the first conspiracy when he offered to defend Catiline on the score of provincial peculations. No writer has been heavy on Hortensius for defending Verres, but only because he took bribes from Verres. End of footnote. But Catiline, though he was acquitted, was balked in his candidature for the consulship of the next year, B.C. 65. P. Sulla and Antronius were elected, that Sulla to whose subsequent defence I have just referred in this note, but were ejected on the score of bribery, and two others, Torquatus and Cotta, were elected in their place. In this way three men standing on high before their countrymen one having been debarred from standing for the consulship, and the other two having been robbed of their prize even when it was within their grasp, not unnaturally became traitors at heart. Almost as naturally they came together and conspired. Why should they have been selected as victims, having only done that which every aristocrat did as a matter of course in following out his recognised profession in living upon the subject nations? Their conduct had probably been the same as that of others, or, if more glaring, only so much so as is always the case with vices as they become more common. However, the three men fell, and became the centre of a plot which is known as the First Catiline Conspiracy. The reader must bear in mind that I am now telling the story of Catiline, and going back to a period of two years before Cicero's consulship, which was B.C. 63. How, during that year, Cicero successfully defended Murena when Cato endeavoured to rob him of his coming consulship, has already been told. It may be that Murena's hands were no cleaner than those of Sulla and Autronius, 
and that they lacked only the consular authority and forensic eloquence of the advocate who defended Morena. At this time, when the two appointed consuls were rejected, Cicero had hardly as yet taken any part in public politics. He had been quaestor, aedile, and praetor, filling those administrative offices to the best of his ability. He had, he says, hardly heard of the first conspiracy. That what he says is true is, I think, proved by the absence of all allusion to it in his early letters, or in the speeches or fragments of speeches that are extant. But that there was such a conspiracy we cannot doubt, nor that the three men named, Catiline, Sulla, and Autronius, were leaders in it. What would interest us, if only we could have the truth, is whether Caesar and Crassus were joined in it. It is necessary again to consider the condition of the Republic. To us, a conspiracy to subvert the government under which the conspirer lives seems either a very terrible remedy for great evils, or an attempt to do evil which all good men should oppose. We have the happy conspiracy in which Washington became the military leader, and the French Revolution, which, bloody as it was, succeeded in rescuing Frenchmen from the condition of serfdom. At home we have our own conspiracy against the Stuart royalty, which had also noble results. The Gracchi had attempted to effect something of the same kind at Rome, but the moral condition of the people had become so low that no real love of liberty remained. Conspiracy! Oh, yes! As long as there was anything to get, of course he who had not got it would conspire against him who had. There had been conspiracies for and against Marius, for and against Cinna, for and against Sulla. There was a grasping for plunder, a thirst for power which meant luxury, a greed for blood which grew from the hatred which such rivalry produced. These were the motive causes for conspiracies, not whether Romans should be free, but whether a Sulla or a Cotta should be allowed to run riot in a province. Caesar at this time had not done much in the Roman world except fall greatly into debt. Knowing, as we know now, his immense intellectual capacity, we cannot doubt but at the age he had now reached, 35 BC 65, he had considered deeply his prospects in life. There is no reason for supposing that he had conceived the idea of being a great soldier. That came to him by pure accident some years afterwards. To be quaestor, praetor, and consul, and catch what was going, seems to have been the cause to him of having encountered extraordinary debt. That he would have been a Verres, or a Fonteus, or a Catiline, we are certainly not entitled to think. Over whatever people he might have come to reign, and in whatever way he might have procured his kingdom, he would have reigned with a far-seeing eye fixed upon future results. At this period he was looking out for a way to advance himself. There were three men, all just six years his senior, who had risen or were rising into great repute. They were Pompey, Cicero, and Catiline. There were two who were noted for having clean hands in the midst of all the dirt around, and they were undoubtedly the first Romans of the day. Catiline was determined that he too would be among the first Romans of the day, but his hands had never been clean. Which was the better way for such a one as Caesar to go? To have had Pompey under his feet, or Cicero, must have then seemed to Caesar to be impracticable, though the time came when he did in different ways have his feet on both. With Catiline the chance of success might be better. Crassus he had already compassed. Crassus was like Monsieur Poirier in the play, 
a man who, having become rich, then allowed himself the luxury of an ambition. If Caesar joined the plot, we can well understand that Crassus should have gone with him. We have all but sufficient authority for saying that it was so, but authority insufficient for declaring it. That Sallust, in his short account of the first conspiracy, should not have implicated Caesar was a matter of course, as he wrote altogether in Caesar's interest. That Cicero should not have mentioned it is also quite intelligible. He did not wish to pull down upon his ears the whole house of the aristocracy. Throughout his career it was his object to maintain the tenor of the law with what smallest breach of it might be possible, but he was wise enough to know that when the laws were being broken on every side he could not catch in his nets all those who broke them. He had to pass over much to make the best of the state of things as he found them. It is not to be supposed that a conspirator against the Republic would be horrible to him as would be to us a traitor against the Crown. There were too many of them for horror. If Caesar and Crassus could be got to keep themselves quiet, he would be willing enough not to have to add them to his list of enemies. Livy is presumed to have told us that this conspiracy intended to restore the ejected consuls, and to kill the consuls who had been established in their place. But the book in which this is written is lost, and we have only the epitome or heading of the book, of which we know that it was not written by Livy. Suetonius, who got his story not improbably from Livy, tells us that Caesar was suspected of having joined this conspiracy with Crassus, and he goes on to say that Cicero, writing subsequently to one Axius, declared that Caesar had attempted in his consulship to accomplish the dominion which he had intended to grasp in his aedileship, the year in question. There is, however, no such letter extant. Asconius, who, as I have said before, wrote in the time of Tiberius, declares that Cicero, in his lost oration in Toga Candida, accused Crassus of having been the author of the conspiracy. Such is the information we have, and if we elect to believe that Caesar was then joined with Catiline, we must be guided by our ideas of probability rather than by evidence. As I have said before, conspiracies had been very rife. To Caesar it was no doubt becoming manifest that the Republic, with its oligarchs, must fall. Subsequently it did fall, and he was, I will not say the conspirator, nor will I judge the question by saying that he was the traitor, but the man of power who, having the legions of the Republic in his hands, used them against the Republic. I can well understand that he should have joined such a conspiracy as this first of Catiline, and then have backed out of it when he found that he could not trust those who were joined with him. The conspiracy failed. One man omitted to give a signal at one time, and another at another. The Senate was to have been slaughtered, the two consuls, Cotta and Torquatus, murdered, and the two ex-consuls, Sulla and Autronius, replaced. Though all the details seemed to have been known to the consuls, Catiline was allowed to go free, nor were any steps taken for the punishment of the conspirators. End of chapter 9, part 1